Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah, ve ha'arevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka, befinu ufi amka b'it Yisrael, v'niye anaknu, v'etza enu, v'etza etza e amka b'it Yisrael, kulanu yodea shemeka velom de Torateka, lishma, Baruch atah Adonai, Hamlamed Torah Leamo Yisrael. Baruch Haba Beshem Adonai. All right, welcome back to Chaye Sarah. So, this week's Torah portion, I have broken everything up for the Chaye Sarah GO, the go off or uh, getting organized, as I have lovingly called it. <laughs> so, you notice I did a part one. Well, this is part two. Uh, I decided that when uh, just talking about Kaye Sarah, talking about life, you know, one of the things about it is that the word Chai, which is the root of life, or Chaye, which is the which is life, so life being the root of life. Um, one of the things about that is, you know, really, what are we here for? You know, and uh, we're here to bring forth the next generation among many things that we do. And also to be the generation. So um, just real quick, I want to go ahead and just look at the dictionary of the Targumim for this word Chaye as used in our Torah portion. And it literally is uh, related to the word Chaya. So shouts out to Yaakov and Chaya who uh, just... This past Yom Rishon of Parsha um, Toldot. Uh, so going right out of Chaye Sarah into Parsha Toldot, um, Yaakov and Chaya entered into Kiddushin. So it was beautiful to be a part of that and holding the hoopah. And uh, so Baruch Hashem, because, you know, the angels got to do that in Gandhi Din when Adam and Hava got married. So you know, it was just kind of like, all right, so you'll get to do, you know, some angelic stuff. And it's just like, mm, yeah, sure. That's no big deal. You know, all right. No, it was a very big honor. So, um, Baruch Hashem. So looking at Chaye and Chaya and uh, Chaye or Chaya, when you look at this word in the Targumim, it literally says to live, to heal, to recover, to regain health to be recalled to life, to resurrect. Okay, because we have to know Mashiach, when he says, I'm the life and the resurrection, like what in the world does that mean? Because he was talking about uh, Eliezer, which is commonly translated as Lazarus. And it was just kind of like, well, if you had a came here earlier, O King, Messiah, Yeshua, you know, the one who's called redemption and salvation and all that good stuff, if you would have came earlier, we would have never had to experience any of this. And he's like, I need you to believe that I'm the resurrection and the life. I need you to know that, you know, and it's just kind of like, what, what's really the, what's the picture there? What is that presenting? You know, and it's really to say, look outside, look outside, just like what Hashem did to Abraham. When Abraham was said, yes, Hashem, you blessed me with everything, but I don't have a progeny. So like, it's not going to mean anything. And it says Hashem took Abraham outside the tent. So when you look at Chaye, 
This is about looking outside yourself. You know, who do you impact as you live life? You know, you got to really think about these things, you know, what kind of consequences our decisions and our choices are, you know, our choices, our decisions, same thing, you know, that um, how does that impact, you know, your household? How does that impact your community? How does it impact your job, you know, and things like that? And so this this whole picture here of the resurrection, you know, because that's the power of the Ruach HaKodesh within us is that we live a resurrected life, which is why it's important that if we are still living, still existing and having our very being and the pathway of life that we existed in, that we lived in prior to conversion, that's a problem, you know, because that nullifies your conversion. And I really like the fact that when you really get down to who is saved, that it's not this whole who believes in, you know, the name of Yeshua and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, no, who has literally been crossed over from Met, which is death, into Chaye, life. Because, I mean, it really cuts out all the shenanigans, if you really want to just get super practical with it. Because people who proclaim to have faith in the God of the Bible all the time, you know, they they don't exude that essence. You know, because there are certain things that you do now that you did not used to do. There are certain things that you used to do that you do not do any longer. Namely... Think about the things that happen upon conversion, which, by the way, we don't know when conversion starts, because as Yeshua brings down that, you know, if you can tell where the wind has its source, like if you can pinpoint the wind started right here, then you can tell when someone's converted. So there's a whole lot of um rabbinic commentary on this because, you know, it's like the children of Israel were all idolaters when they came out of Mitzrayim or when we came out of Mitzrayim, we were all idolaters, but we had the crossing of the Yom Suf, So going through the sea of reeds, commonly known as the Red Sea. So that was a mikvah. And then we had the fact that, oh, even before that, you know, we had the Pesach lamb which was the night that all the Jewish men got circumcised. So you have a Brit Milah, you have the partaking of the Pesach lamb, which by the way, if you're not in covenant with Hashem, you're not to eat the Pesach lamb. So people who are partaking of the Pesach lamb, Mashiach, let's think about this, you know, but uh, Selah, Moving on, though, uh, then we have the fact that we had to take three days prior to the receiving of the Torah that we had to wash our garments, which Targum Ankelos, his crazy self, brings down that that was conversion, the fact that they washed their garments. And what does Kabbalah teach us about garments? That this, this is our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds. And what is the water? The water is none other than Torah, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God. So when the Spirit of God 
transforms your deeds, you've already began the conversion process. Furthermore, the true circumcision, as we just did a couple of weeks ago in the Agarit Romans podcast, we learned about the whole circumcision of the heart and what that truly means. Because before your flesh is circumcised, your heart is circumcised, which is why women, first of all, don't get circumcised because not only for obvious reasons, but the true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. Now, with men, we also have the outward expression that we must fulfill, but your outward expression is not fulfilled unless your inward expression is fulfilled. Because trust me on this. Trust me. If you're a guy, you're not just going to go willy nilly out and go get circumcised like that. That's a planned thing, you know. And so uh, you can go back again to our example exuded in Abraham that, you know, it was years down the road before he was circumcised, you know, so there's all that to really take into account. Hence why if you read in the letters, you know, like Acts and, uh, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Corinthians, Titus, you know, all these different uh, passages that are in, you know, the different sections of, you know, the second part of the Bible is that, or I shouldn't say the second part, it would really be just a reiteration or extra commentary uh, aside from the Basora. But uh, when you really look at that, it really shows us that, you know, circumcision, yes, it, it's super important and it is not to be put off to the side as like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. But there's something that is really the main thing. And that is, are you in covenant with Hashem? Do you live for him? Do you like, where are you? You know, and, and that speaks to the resurrection because one who has been recalled to life as this beautiful definition is here is that, you know, you are different. You are no longer the same. You're literally a new creation. So this is new creation talk. So in Parsha Chayesera, this is taking place immediately after the Akeda, which was where the son, who was the image of the father, as Rabbi Griffin so beautifully elucidates, was offered, but then resurrected. And after that, now we have the, the passing of the torch, you know, where now the Akeda gets married you know, and it's just kind of like the transition between Abraham to Yitzhak. And that all has to do with Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. And there are so many commentaries, but one of the one of the cliff notes is that it's called Chaye Sarah because of Sarah's impact on the lives of those she left behind. Which I think is just so amazing because if we look at the fallout, the fallout of this Torah portion, her death caused Abraham to begin to purchase Eretz Yisrael for his descendants, first of all. So, Kaye, or the life of Sarah, Sarah was definitely all about gaining a hold of the land like Hashem had promised. So, that's the first thing. Then the next thing is 
for the son to be married so that they can be fruitful and multiply. You know, and so it's just kind of like, okay, so have children, have have descendants, you know, that will keep and continue the mission. And then you have the whole beautiful thing about what kind of wife was chosen. You know, that the wife of the Akira, like, what what is that? You know, and uh, it all ties back to the end of Parsha Vayera, where immediately after the Akedah, we learn about the birth of Rivka. And so Rivka is very, very uh, intricately connected to the Akedah. So the the bride of the Akedah is directly connected with all of those events. And so uh, one more thing before I get into our really uh, big part here of why I wanted to do Chaye and where I want to go with our insights is uh, just looking at some more of these definitions is uh, revive, you know, and to call to life and um, living. So when we look at this picture, Okay, so you got the the Akira needing to get married and then who his bride is. She's announced when his death and resurrection are accounted, you know, and it's just kind of like, okay. so going all the way, push the lever up straight to the awkwardness. Chapter 24, Rashi is talking about this young lady because he calls, she's called a Na'ara, by the way, a, a young lady. And it is important to note that um, Yitzhak is called a Na'ar. So you have the Na'ar and the Na'ara. And that is Na'ar, Yitzhak, Na'ara, Rivka. Now, both of those terms mean a very, very young person. The crazy thing about this is Yitzhak is like, he was 37 at the Akira. Three years later, when he's getting ready to get married to Rivka, he's 40. But he's still called a Na'ar. Other people who are called a Na'ar, Memtet. We got Yosef. We got David. Uh, we got Moshe. And, you know, the Na'ar is like this, this title, but yet it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is super young, which for Rivka, it talks about the fact that, you know, she's a Na'ara. So it's like, well, how old was Rivka? You know, because the commentary by Rashi points out that she was three years old. So now that we've already got the awkwardness in the room, got a three-year-old and a 40-year-old. Going to go ahead and tell you that's not really what that is. But, uh, you know, let's let the awkwardness hang out for a little bit. Because if we can hang out with this awkwardness for a second, we can actually glean something beautiful. Because we're going to use not only common sense, because if she was three... How does three-year-old girl is watering camels? You know, like, unless she's, like, frozen, you know, like the little fairy girl. Like, I don't know how this is really going to work out. 
But anyway, there's miraculous stuff that goes on with the water. I get it. But she's carrying water jugs, okay? Literally, verse 15 in chapter 24 says, And it was when she had not yet, or Slika, and it was when he had, talking to Eliezer, not yet finished speaking that suddenly Rivka was coming out. She who had been born to Betuel, son of Milka, the wife of Nahor, the brother of Abraham, with her jug on her shoulder. Okay, she's carrying a water jug. Now, I'm just going to point out there that a water jug is a little different than a water cup. Most three-year-olds have a hard time carrying a water cup. So there's that. Anyway, I am not three years old and I still have a hard time carrying a water cup. But that's beside the point. Um, little, little humor, I guess. But anyway, uh, so this is going on, right? So here's the commentary as brought down by Sofrine 21.9. Rivka was three years old when she left her father's home. All right, it's going to get a little awkward, even more so than it has gotten. So, but this is commentary that I know is worth us listening to because we're going to find out that the three years old business is not her age, but it's proof to her virginity. Okay. It says Arameans would normally defile their daughter's before marrying them off. Okay. So this is interesting because this is the household that Rivka's in where it's like, Oh, you want to marry my daughter? Okay. Well, real quick, I got to uh, tend to some business and it's just like, that's so disturbing. Okay. And it says, even if they were as young as three years old, but Rivka was miraculously not defiled by her father. Our pasuk hints to this when it says no man had known her. The term man is referring to her father, Betuel. This again is from Sofrim 21.9. So when we look at the fact that commentary would say she's three years old, it's actually proving a point that she has not been defiled. She is still a virgin because the only time that she would be considered to be able to be defiled was if she was three. So it's letting us know up until this point, she's still considered three because she still hasn't been touched. So that's one thing. I know that doesn't really bring a lot of solidity, but you know, you got to build your case. Not that a case needs to be built, but you know, I had the beautiful opportunity to sit around with some of the Avengers and, you know, we got the awkwardness out and the elephant in the room and all that kind of stuff. But as we began to really seek a shem and just really, you know, hang in there, look at the sources, use our common sense that a shem has given us, use our superpowers. We quickly found out this text does not mean what you think it means. You know, that's so just like a, you know, where's your heart on this? You know, because so many times, again, speaking about Kaye, speaking about life, so many times life throws things at us that it's just kind of like, what are you going to do with this? 
this is so like it may be something that's debilitating. It may be something that's so frustrating. It may be something that is just so awkward, something that's just so, man, I'd rather not deal with this right now. But it's like, what are you going to do with it? Because when I came across the three years old thing, you know, honestly, up until this year, I've been just like, Rashi is smoking crack. Like, you know, just putting it out there, just straight LaShawn hurrah. So sleek out on that. I apologize. But oh, my goodness. You know, it's just kind of like what in the world? But this year I was determined. I was like, you know what? I know that commentary is going to come up again, but here's what I'm going to do with it. Hashem, what is here? What what are we really seeing? It's like, okay, so let's compare age of accountability. Okay, age of accountability is 20. All right, so if we look at that, then we have the whole idea that what is three years old from the age of accountability? That's 23. Okay, that seems comfortable. But really, do we study Torah so that we can be comfortable with our own opinions and perspectives? No, um, just in case we need to help with that. The other thing about this is um, the Torah is not really all about time lines. It's not all about a history book. When we look at these stories, these stories are, you know, the outer garments, you know, all the commentaries that exist about the layers of Torah, you know, check these things out, like Orchard of Delights. Um, you know, I believe it was Rabbi GQ this week that goes into Hashem has this infinite Torah that he's going to put in a finite vessel. So we're going to be looking at stories and accounts of the lives of the patriarchs. And it's like, if you can look at that, grapple with that, then you can begin to experience what's actually inside this jar. You know, if you can deal with the finiteness of the Torah, then you can get down and start seeing the infinity. So what's the infinity behind Rivka being three? The beautiful thing is we just saw one of them. It says that she was undefiled because at three years old in her culture, they would defile their young women. So Rivka was still three, i.e. she was still undefiled. She could have been defiled as far as availability from her culture aspect, but Hashem would have it so that she was undefiled, even if she could have been, because she was still at that particular, um, what do you want to call it? She was still at that particular set of circumstances. So it's just kind of like she's been three this whole time and no one has done anything. So that's pretty cool when you think about the miraculousness of Hashem, because how amazing is it for us who've come into Judaism, who've entered into covenant from being outsiders, from being among the Gentiles, that, you know, whether we were violated or not in our previous exist in our previous cultures or in our previous um, existence prior to being resurrected anew to life and becoming new creations that, you know, were we people who were blown with every way, wind and doctrine? Were we people who were just idolater central, you know, or were we just static people? You know, like I didn't really do anything good. I didn't really do anything bad. You know, I kind of maybe had an idea of God, but I just lived life. You know, I didn't I didn't 
you know, smoke, drink, or chew tobacco or go, go with girls that do. Like, you may have not have done any of that. And so, you know, regardless of where you fall on that, you know, it's just kind of like, that's the picture here that we're seeing that, you know, Rivka in her culture, she could have been a host of things, but yet she was preserved. And for us who come, whether we were not preserved or whether we were, that through conversion, through the waters of the mikvah, through the spirit of Yeshua, we be we be we are renewed and we become as if we were preserved. So, uh, if that makes any sense, Bezrat Hashem, hopefully it does. Just this whole idea of being born again, being born anew. If you weren't formerly a spiritual virgin, now you are, you know, so to speak, because Hashem has renewed you to that level, to that point. You know, that doesn't take away if you've had, you know, relations outside of, you know, your conversion um, and everything like that. That doesn't take away your physical, uh, you know, thing on that end. But it does renew you uh, to a spiritual purity. So there's that. All right. So the other thing I want to bring down is from the Milstein edition Humash that in chapter 24, verse 16, it says a virgin whom no man had known. Okay. So we got our first building block about her being undefiled. So check this out now. It says in the commentary from Yevamot 61b, okay, and it says that, by the way, on the footnote, Rabbi Eliezer maintains that Rivka was at least 12 years old when she left home. Other opinions see the section titled Undefiled. Okay, so there's that. And this little phrase. Other opinions are that she was still a minor. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. So now we say she was a minor, but then we say she was 14 or she was we say she was at least 12. And this is all having to do with her being three. So are we saying that there's some kind of multiple of three? Maybe she was three, four different times, which would be 12 or is three like you know, four years each, you know, so to make her 12, like, what are we talking about? We're talking about different opinions because though we see that she was clearly not a minor, she was clearly not three. And Rabbi Eliezer says she was at least 12. Check out this from Yevamot 61b. Rabbi Eliezer rules that a Cohen may not marry a minor. Okay. So according to Yevamot, she can't be a minor. So this other opinion that exists that she was a minor, what's up with that? Let's keep going. The reason is because the Kohen Gadol must marry a Batula, a virgin. Don't you know that when it says return, O daughters of Yisrael, to your cities? Let me go ahead and source that out for us real quick. Because what you need to know in that verse is that we're called Betulot. Uh, 
Uh, let's see. It is from, yes. Nope. It's in here somewhere. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Don't you just love that answer? Yeah, I know what we're looking for. It's in the Bible somewhere. It's like, okay. Uh, stand by. I thought it was from Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Return, O daughters of Israel, to your cities. Let's see. Return to your cities. This is one of the uh, verses. Obviously, that I did not plan to share. So I apologize for the wait. Yes, it is Yahoo. It is specifically 3121. So blessed be the name of Hashem. I was partially right, but I did not know the exact coordinates. And now we know them because it says return. O virgin Betula, Israel to your cities. OK, so when we make Aliyah to Yerushalayim. We're called Betulot. So, yeah, just say la. Like when we get we get married to the Kohen Gadol, like Hashem. It's like you have to be a Betula. It's like because when you go to make Aliyah to enter into the temple, you have to be a virgin in order to do that. And it's like, well, did you make Aliyah? Yes. Well, congratulations, you're a virgin. And so that goes back to my point of me talking about the conversion process being a spiritual uh, conversion or for your virginity. So anyway, um, going on, it says that and only a Naara can be called a Batula, not a minor. Okay. A Naara, the, she's the only one that can be called a Batula. So if you say Batula, we're already talking about somebody who's young, but specifically, we're talking about a virgin who is a young woman. So this is kind of the whole thing that gets people tripped up about, oh, the Virgin Mary. It's like, well, first of all, that's not even her name. But second of all, she doesn't necessarily have to be called a virgin. We can just call her a young maiden, which is a Naara. And if we call her a Naara or an Alma or a Batula, we're making it super specific that she has not known a man. She has not been defiled and therefore she's fit to marry a Cohen. So there's that. But I digress. So it says this can be seen from our Pasuk, which makes the point of first describing Rivka as a Naara, a maiden, who was at least 12 years old, and then as a Batula. So, yeah, so there you go. So literally when it says a virgin who no man had known in verse 16 of chapter 24, it literally says, Betula ve'ish lo yada, or yed, yedaa. So she was a virgin, and 
man know known. Like she has not known a man. She has not known a man. She is a Batula. So we're going to give you extra things on this. I'm going to go ahead and just drop down the double expression commentary from the Yerushalayimi Ketubot 1.3. The Pasuk uses a double expression, noting that she was a virgin and that no man had known her. This teaches us that no man had relations with her at all, neither naturally or unnaturally. Because, again, in all that three years old uh, stuff, if you did a crazy search on Safaria, you're going to get a whole lot of that. And it's just kind of like, you just need to know Rivka does not fit the bill for that. So when it says Rivka was three, it's alluding to a lot more than that. So here's how I want to bring it home. I want to drop down two sources. The first one, my favorite, Hiskuni. Hiskuni on verse 20 of chapter 25 says Rashi's comment on this apparently historically irrelevant detail. I love it. This is a, an apparent historic, historical, slika, irrelevant detail. This is like, okay, Rivka got married to Yitzhak. She wasn't a baby. Like, okay, why are we tripping on this? But anyway, that's how he opens his commentary. That's probably why he's my favorite. Anyway, it says, is that the Torah informed us that Yitzchak, Yitzchak, after marrying Rivka, waited for three years until she was old enough to engage in intercourse and become pregnant, i.e. 14 years old. Okay, so now we have another problem because it's like if he waited three years and by the end of three years, she was 14. Like, now we're talking 11, so now she was a minor. So, like, what? Is Rebbe Eliezer lying? Because Eliezer said that she was she was 12. It's like, well, maybe. But Yitzhak waited three years. So, to make sure that she wasn't just 12, she was, like, you know, 14. Because she was originally 11 and not not 12. It's like, okay, so more discrepancy. Now we got she's three, she's 23, she's 14, she's 12. Any any other numbers we want to throw out there, you know? It's, at this point, you just kind of feel like, what is going on? But anyway, we're going somewhere with this. In his commentary on Bereshit 24.16, item 91, Rabbi Kosher, which I'm just going to go ahead and say Rabbi Kosher, because, yeah, in his Torah Shlema, deals at length with the conflicting opinions about Rivka's age at marriage, which is Kiddushin. Sifre on Devarim 34.7 claims Rivka lived to the age of 133 years, same age as that of Kahat ben Levi. And it says our author calculates that if Rivka had only been Three years at the time when she was married, that calculation would be wrong by 11 years. Goodness. Okay. He proceeds to give this to give details tracing the various ages of our patriarchs and matriarchs down to the birth of Kahat. He also understands the Midrash according to which Abraham heard 
about the fact that Betuel, or Betuel, had fathered Rivka, as not meaning that this had occurred at the same time as the Akedah, but that Abraham had belatedly heard about this. Again, because there's no time in the Torah. So we read the Akedah, then now we hear about the birth of Rivka, and it's like, Abraham, you heard Betuel had, you know, Rivka. And so here's your match for your son. It's like, well, just killed my son. And so don't really want to talk about this right now. Oh, wait. Okay, what are we talking about now? Because my son just got resurrected. Okay, anyway. It's like, yeah, Rivka was born. You hear? Did you hear that? Sorry, I was too focused on the life and the resurrection. It, like, she was just now born? Or, like, was she born 11 years ago, 12 years ago, 20 years ago? What are we talking? So, anyway, that's kind of the, the situation we're in right now. It's like, okay, if he heard at the time, I can understand how she's three. But he's is bringing down through Rabbi Kosher that this is actually him hearing about it later. Just because it's right after the Akedah doesn't mean he heard right after the Akedah. Okay? Probably after an experience like that, you don't want to hear anything but Baruch Hashem. Like, I don't know what just happened to me kind of thing. Or our father Abraham is OG. So, I mean, ain't no telling what kind of mindset he was in but he did have to deal with the death of sarah so there is that you know which is kind of a crazy roller coaster because you go from losing your son to getting him back to now losing your wife and not getting her back and it's like okay this is okay blessed be the name of hashem all right so going on it says he belatedly heard this as proof that Rivka could not have been only three years old when Eliezer met her, he cites the fact that her brother and her mother refer to her as a Na'ara. Yep, that's right. So she had to be at least 12. And it says a term never, everybody say never, never applied to someone younger than 12 or 12 and a half years of age. Mm-mm-mm. So Naara can fit anybody beyond 12, 12 and a half, but not under that age. So she had to be at least 12. So now 11 is ruled out. And now three is definitely ruled out. <laughs> okay. Going on to say the well-known traditional historic text known as Seder Olam, which, by the way, is where Rashi quoted his three years old, uh, dropped from. It says, in its first chapter, also writes that when Abraham returned from the Akedah, he was told that Rivka had been born. The meaning of that Midrash was that she had been born some time ago. Goodness. Because Abraham heard that she was born after the Akedah meant she was born some time ago. We don't know when. She was just born. You just need to know Rivka's already been born a long time or some time ago. Sleeka. Let me not exaggerate. But anyway, it says um, another proof that she was of age is that we have an ironclad 
just gonna go out on a limb here and say since it says ironclad, it's probably like get your mind out of the disturbing gutter that the girl was three because ain't no way in the world pedophilia is a thing that we do. That's pretty much what that two words right there. We have an iron one clad two. The two words. Ironclad rule that parents must not marry off a girl who has already reached puberty unless she has been asked and given her consent. The fact that in our chapter, Rivka's family proceeds to ask her for her consent proves that without it, the parents could not have married her off. So the parents had to have consent. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, Selah, she was not three. Going on, uh, we're going to finish up with Da'at Zekanim. Same verse, chapter 25, verse 20. Yitzhak was 40 years old. Okay, so we know Yitzhak was 40, but we don't know how old the bride was. I think it's really interesting because we, as the bride of Mashiach, we don't know how old each of us are because we're all born again at different times. As far as when did when did I enter into the covenant? When did you enter into the covenant? When are more people going to enter into the covenant? So it's a beautiful picture when you really think about it that you can't really tell the age of the bride because, first of all, you don't even know when the bride becomes the bride because nobody knows when someone is born of the spirit because you can you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't really see where the wind specifically starts from. As Mashiach Yeshua would put it, which is why I just think it's so amazing to really kind of connect those dots and try to think about this in a more less disturbing way in a more uh, scholarly way and also in a Avenger way. All right. So according to Rashi, the 40 year old Yitzhak married a three year old Rivka. Man, can't get away from that. This is difficult. I love it. That's a big word. This is difficult. As we have learned from the Seafree that there were three people who reached the same age. The three people are Kahat, Ben Azai, and Rivka. And the Torah stated that Kahat died at the age of 133, found in Shemot 6, verse 18. If this were correct, she must have been 11. Years older than three when she married Yitzhak. So if Kahat died at 133, which should have been the same age as Rivka and Benazai, then she had to have been 11 years older than three, which would put her at the 14. Now it says there is no sea free on Sefer Bereshit. But the Midrash Haggadol, which originated in Yemen, also claims that Rivka was 14 years old when she married Yitzhak. Okay, so now we got two witnesses going on. 
Rashi's calculation goes as follows. Rivka was married at three, and she was 23 years old when she gave birth to Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov was 63 years old when he fled to Padan Aram, as Rashi explains at the end of this portion. He then spent 14 years in the academy, headed by Ever, great-grandson of Noach. After that, he worked 20 years for his uncle Levon. He spent two years on his return journey home, during which time he was informed by Rivka's nursemaid that his mother had died. So Yaakov and Yitzhak actually have a kind of similar experience where when they go away to their Akedah, on their way back, their mother passes away. So that's interesting. But anyway, it goes on to say that um, as Rashi explains at the end of Parshat Vayishlak, in connection with the burial of the nursemaid called Devorah and the naming of an oak tree after her, Ah, uh, the palm tree of Devorah. Get you some. Okay. According to this calculation, Rivka could not have lived to an older age or to an age older than 123. If that's the case. So let's just do a little thing here. Let's just add 11 to that. That'll be 134. Okay. So, just checking. But 10 years older than that is the 133. Okay, continuing with the commentary, it says, This also this is also the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, according to whom Rivka must have been 14 years old when she got married. If you accept the view, Rivka died at the age of 133. According to this calculation, we read in Seder Olam chapter 1, Abraham was informed about the birth of Rivka while on the way home from the binding of Yitzhak. She must have been 11 years old already at that time. So now you add the three years to that, which will make her 14. Okay. Then it says, this is what bothered Rabbi Moshe Shlomo ben Abraham, known by the acrostic of uh, Anosima Noon, which is uh, an abbreviation that he's called by. But going on, it says, when discussing that a virgin is given 12-month period or 12 months between betrothal and consummation of the mar marriage. Tractate Ketuvot 57. The Talmud there derives this from the words in our portion when Rivka's family demanded 12 months delay from Eliezer before Rivka going with him. If Rivka had been 14 years old already, she would have been considered an adult and her father would not have had the right to tell her what to do unless she still continued to live in his house. The Talmud there gives a girl who is over 12 and a half years old at betrothal only 30 days before becoming wed to her fiance, just as the length of time required before a widow can remarry. Wow. 30 days before becoming wed. And 
this is uh, the length of time that a widow has to wait before they can remarry. 30 days. Interesting. Okay, and then it says, our author leaves the question open, not having heard how to reconcile these data to the satisfaction of all scholars. Quick little drop there is that unless she was still living in her father's house, which, by the way, if she was 14 and still living in her father's house, she would still have to have her. uh, She still have to go through the whole thing of like the father would ask, "Okay, do you have do you want to marry him? And she'd have to give consent to that. So, I mean, that's a beautiful thing, too, to really think about that. She wasn't just living on her own. She was still a part of her father's house. Which just makes me want to know more details on Miriam, you know, being in her father's house. Because, you know, when she was told that she was going to conceive by the Ruach HaKodesh, she went and went with her cousin, you know, Elisheva, to uh, who's the one who gave birth to Yochanan, Hatavel, Yochanan the Immersal, and the Immerser. So, just to kind of summarize all of this because i thank you for just tuning in hopefully you know this was some more ways to kind of look at some sources and and kind of see you know how to study and um you know not that no one does know how to study or not like not to go there with it but just to say before we uh before we go rashi crazy before we want to get rashi a beat down tell him he's smoking crack like let's just look at you know the bigger picture look at what is this alluding to you know and the fact that this is a a title this is a a sourcing out of a beautiful context like i think it's just incredible when we really look at what's going on with rifka being three so um i would be totally remiss if i did not share this so this comes directly from dr sakal Something is wrong with this kid. He needs some spiritual help. Um, let's see here. He drops this down from the rom call on verse 24, 15, where it says, And it came to pass before he finished speaking that, behold, Rivka came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her water jar upon her shoulder. All right, everybody, duck and cover. says, suddenly Rivka came out. She who had been born to Bethuel, okay? says, in addition to the simple meaning of coming out, the principal interpretation is that she came out from Hakavar, which is a rearrangement of the word Rivka. Literally, you can rearrange the word Rivka to Hakavar, which is the grave. And it says the grave, this is the grave of Tuma, which is impurity, into which she was born. So it's likening Rivka's coming out as a resurrection. And what are we talking about with Kaye? We're talking about resurrection. And what are we talking about with her being three? Talking about she came forth out of impurity, but she was pure. Like a person who's resurrected from the dead no longer has the impurity of death on them. Okay, so she comes out from the grave and it says 
So she was out of out from the grave and was into which she was born and then really born into death. Come on now. Raising herself to the level of connecting with Haboker, which is the morning. Another way to rearrange Rivka not only is Hakaver, which is grave, but also Haboker, the morning. When did Yeshua get resurrected? It was after Habdala and definitely by Haboker. And it says the light. So this is the light. It says the light of Kedushah. Trans, the transformation from Hakaver, which is the grave, the Tuma, the impurity, to Haboker, which is Kedusha, which is the light, the morning. The reason she was named Rivka is because when it's spelled backwards, it is Hakaver. So you have the fact that the Akira goes down and then it's like, well, there's somebody in the grave. So when the Akira gets resurrected, so does his bride. Because what does Shaul Hashliak write in his letter? That we are crucified with Mashiach. We are buried with him in his death. And we are raised with him in his resurrection. So may that be so. May we all, in that case, be three years old. And may it be soon in our days that we see our Mashiach. And may we be continuously brought from death into life. May we continuously be purified by the Spirit of God and hold fast to his word. Amen. All right. Parsha Chaye Sarah. Here's the main thing that I want to get into from Lakute Torah. This is my podcast entitled Food Fight. So I want to begin with writings to the Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Shaul Hashliach brings down. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Some uh, translations will talk about eating to the worship of God or, or things of that nature. And I loosely have always kind of coined this term. I'm going to eat to the glory of God. Let me do it. Anyway, so that's the real version of this verse that I just read here. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Notice how it puts eat or drink. And so these are specific things that we get to do with our mouth. So these are mouth mitzvot, um, basically. And um, there are so many different things, by the way, that uh, are connected to this. First thing I want to uh, let us know is that, you know, we're supposed to pray without ceasing, right? So literally there, if you open up your Siddur, there's a blessing for just about anything you can think of. Smelling a new smell, uh, you're getting ready to eat an apple, or uh, you're getting ready to go to sleep, you just woke up, you know, you just used the bathroom, you know, there are blessings for all these different things. Why? Because we're supposed to pray without ceasing. And when you look at the word Berek, which is from the word Baruch, which is the word Braka, blessing, like all those words related uh, based off the root Berek, is that this word is a uh, agricultural term for grafting. So if you really want to be grafted into a Shem, 
you recite brakot, blessings. You always bless him. So literally when we're doing that, we want to we bless Hashem. We're literally grafting ourselves into the true vine, as it were. Literally abiding in Hashem, abiding in Mashiach, as he would say. So, you know, um, I think that's really incredible when it comes to food, that this is one of the main ways we can graft ourselves into Hashem. The crazy part about everything that's getting ready to happen, because I haven't really quite started yet, is that it is important what we eat. And if we don't realize that, then we have a problem. We need to stop what we're doing, return to Yeshua and start from there. Eating is probably one of the most biggest things you can do next to Torah study and prayer. This is why kosher eating or the lessons and the, the studies of Kashrut is like prerequisite for holiness. You know, and so uh, this passage of uh, the, the kosher foods and uh, the teachings of kosher are literally in Parsha Shemini, which all has to do with the eighth day. So if you really want a new beginning, eat kosher, learn about it. I want to shout out to Captain Yisrael, a.k.a. Rabbi Griffin with Sar Shalom Lapide, that um, he has a wonderful series on YouTube called Soul Food. You should check it out. It's amazing. Also, I want to shout out to Sar Shalom Tulsa, Miss Violent Hadassah Bauer. Y'all drop kicking everybody uh, with her podcast. She does. She's on Anchor. She has a podcast and it's amazing. Got to listen to all three of her drops. So if you need a beautiful way to enter into Kashru, she is doing a kosher in 30 days. Um, she Well, she's done it already. So shouts out to the Bowers. Okay, they holding it down in Tulsa, y'all. Sarshalom, Tulsa, get it in. Baruch Hashem. They, it'd be nothing but blessing, nothing but divine sparks all over the place. I mean, just maybe they just overtake your building. Just divine sparks everywhere. Anyway, so I think that's really awesome, you know, to check out uh, those different resources. And here we go, without further ado. So, food or sustenance in Hebrew is literally three letters. It's mazon. So you may have heard us say, all right, everybody, it's time for Birkat Hamazon. It's time for the blessing after we eat. Blessing after the meal is what it's called. So a mazon is meal. So not to be confused with Amazon. But anyway, mazon. So when you look at this word, I just want to do a gematria real quick. You know, it doesn't ever strike me to check gematria until I'm talking about a Hebrew word, but I should know just as a prerequisite for any time I'm going to break down a Hebrew word, I might just want to already have the gematria handy. But anyway, the gematria is 97, same gematria as Zahav, gold. So there's an aspect of what we eat that's likened to gold. Our food, true food is like gold. Okay. Well, that escalated super quickly. But uh, let's see if there's any other word that I can recognize real quick. Didn't mean to really swerve off into this, but, you know, um, when you look at the gold, gold is likened to the divine spirit of Hashem. 
and it literally overlaid everything in the temple and the Mishkan and all of that. So when we look at our meal, it should be overlaid with Hashem's divine glory. So this word permutates or permutes, rearranges basically to Zeman. Zeman is the singular form of Zamanim. If you've ever heard of this thing called Halakhic Times, where there's a certain time you want to make sure you've said the Shema by this time, there's a certain time you start the Minka, uh, and then there's like a latest time for starting the Minka. There's a Halakhic Time for when you start to light the candles, and there's a Halakhic Time for nightfall, for dusk, for dawn, when you can begin, you know, your morning blessings. And then there's a time for when you are able to uh, wrap to feeling and, you know, dawn to lead. So all of these different things are called halakhic times. And they are literally portions of the day that uh, dictate what occurs during that time. It's also important to note that during these different halakhic times that we're also going through different hours of the day. There are 12 hours during the daylight where the sun is constantly rising above the horizon. And then there are 12 hours during the night where the sun is beneath the horizon and we're experiencing increased darkness up until uh, the dawn. So during those time frames of the daylight hours where the sun is rising, the name, the Yod and Hay and the Vav and Hay are rearranging themselves for the 12 different ways. So, each uh, month on the Hebrew calendar is a different arrangement of Hashem's name. And there are 12 months of the Hebrew calendar. During the night time hours, there are different arrangements of the four-letter name as well of Adonai. The Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yod. So Hashem's name is constantly be being arranged during certain times of the day. Uh, so these things play into... You know, the different prayer times, prayer services we have, what we're actually doing, you know, when when Shabbat starts, when Shabbat ends, when is it Rosh Hodesh, when is it the next day, when is it morning time, when is it nighttime? We're literally having all of our time being bound up in Hashem. So another aspect to how Zahav being the gold, you know, is covering us. So this word Zaman literally says to arrange or designate, to invite, especially to a meal. Uh, it also means designated and chosen. It also means ready at hand in one's possession. It also means to appoint a meal in common so as to say, say grace together, to preface the grace after meal by saying, let us praise. So, Rabotai Nevarek, Yehishem Adonai Mevarak Me'atave Adolam. You know, when we do the whole uh, part of the, the invitation. So, that's a part of the Zamanim. Uh, so, technically, we have a psalm, and then we go into the invitation if there are three or more males gathered for a meal. And that is specifically when the uh, prelude to the Birkat happens and the first blessing, which is where we say, Baruch Adonai. Um, no, no, no. We don't say that. We say, <laughs> wow. I, I only say the Birkat like like almost all the time. But Baruch Hashem, I have my handy dandy Sador here that uh, I can 
do it uh, here. For the first blessing, we say, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Hazan at haolam. Did you catch that? Hazan at haolam. Okay, and then, uh, yeah, so we're talking about some mazon going on there. So anyway, so just so you know uh, a little bit about our blessings that we say, it all has to do with zaman, which is a rearrangement of mazon, which is our food. So our food plays a part into the arranging of things. Also, another word or another definition of zaman means to cause, to prepare, and to notify. Also means to summon or to meet or to come to hand, to join oneself. Remember how we talked about the baraka being the grafting process? So that's what's going on. All right, so that's my preface. It says, Parsha Sarah, Torah or, and this comes from why God made us dependent on food and the difference between Shabbat and weekday eating. So I'm going to puddle jump all throughout this. But if you have the Lukute Torah, we're on Parsha Chaye Sarah. So, yes, the, the cricket is what I call this book, because this is one of the most violent sources that exists today. Lukute Torah and uh, Torah Or by the Hasidus. And it's the weekly Ma'amarim of Ma'amarim of uh, teachings brought down by like the Alter Rebbe, Basham Tov, all the get you sums. And it's a paperback. You're like, surely this kind of violence is not going to be contained in a paperback book. I should be using this book to color. And it's like, no, we use this book for assault and battery. Okay, but anyway, here we go. So if you're in Calle Sarah, here's how it opens. It cites the Torah or page 15b. I'm going to pick up here where it talks about every person must eat. It says every person must eat several meals a day. In total, every person uses a very large percentage of his life in his or of his life in his involvement with food. I would say that's very true. I eat a lot. I don't know about you. Uh, that means a lot of blessings. We're supposed to say 100 blessings a day anyway. So eating is very helpful in that because if you say a bracha before and after you eat something, there you go. Side note, don't know where I saw this. I feel like it's a part of Tractate uh, Braca or Barakot that uh, was saying it's preferable to bless a full unit of something as opposed to just pieces of something. Hence why we say the hamotzi over the hala loaf as opposed to just the different pieces of hala. So, uh, and why you would say the Kiddush over a full bottle of grape juice as opposed to just uh, another portion of that bottle that you've drank at a later time. So it's preferable, open your brand new bottle, pour your cup, and then say your bracha, and that'll cover the rest of the juice in there. So uh, you can also say, you know, the blessing at a later time, if you, if you feel so inclined, Hashem is not going to be like, quit blessing me. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. But it's just saying it's preferable to actually say the brock over the full unit. So, um, like for me, I had a bag of gummy bears earlier today. Shouts out to my ashes, Caillou. Hook me up. Anyway, she hooked me up with some kosher gummy bears. It was amazing. 
And so I said the Braca before eating the first gummy bear and I closed the package up and later throughout the day I had different pieces of the gummy bears until I finished the package. And so once I finished the package, that's when I said my after Braca. But when I initially partook, I said my blessing and later throughout the day as I was eating the same gummy bears, I did not have to say a blessing each time. So hopefully that's helpful to some people that, you know, you can have that go on and things like that. All right, moving forward, it says in the commentary of the Kute Torah here, why, question mark, why did Hashem create this human necessity to eat? He could have created us without the need to eat. Mm, sometimes I feel like that. And it says, and by doing so, we would be able to use our time more wisely to serve him and accomplish the purpose for which we were created. In Judaism, we find various mitzvot associated with food, the kashrus of food, as well as the eating of food. There's a mitzvah to eat food on various dates, such as Shabbat, Yom Tov, Rosh Hodesh. There is a mitzvah for the Kohanim to eat the meal of the Korbanot. I just want to interject in the Midrash says it brought down uh, during Vayikra and Parsha Zav that the atonement wasn't affected for the offerings until the Kohen partook of the food. So if you have a whole burnt offering, the Kohen being Hashem partaking of the food, because the altar is likened to Hashem eating the sacrifices. Uh, and then if you have like a fellowship offering or if you have a sin offering, that's not a whole burnt offering. The Kohenim would eat that. And that's why you don't want to have the food lingering around after it's been, you know, offered on the altar. It's like so-and-so didn't get their sin atone because their sacrifice is still chilling. Like nobody consumed it, you know, and so the Kohen has to partake of it. So hence why he who knew no sin became sin for us to bring reconciliation. Like that's shown through the eating of the sacrificial offerings. So anyway, that doesn't mean that just because you brought a fellowship offering or a peace offering that you're a sinner, but that pertains obviously to the sin offerings and things like that. So just a little note on that, why it's important for the Kohen to eat the food and why we have to eat the Pesach in particular um, and not have it left over by the 16th of Nisan. Like that needs to get consumed either by you or by Hashem. Hence why when you burn it, it ascends up to Hashem. So Hashem eats your sacrifices. So I think that's really interesting that, you know, Hashem, when we have uh, offerings that we offer completely, that's Hashem's food. You know, like that's even brought down to uh, the offerings. If you read in the Siddur, um, it's going to be after page 30 because page 30 is the shiny labor. But you go past page 30, looking at my Siddur right now, the Tommy Eat offering, page 33. If it says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, command the children of Israel and tell them my offering, my food for my fires. My food, it drops down that, let's see here. The offering is referred to as the continual elevation offering, satisfying aroma. Okay. Uh, my offering, my food. Okay. The offering is called Tami Continual. It's brought regularly, day in and day out. Communal offering purchased by the half shekel. So if you pay your half shekel every year, there will always be a Corbin 
tamid offering, a daily lamb offered in the morning and the afternoon. Just because everybody paid their half shekel. If nobody didn't pay their half shekel, we're going to be cut short on our redemption because the atonement that the Tamid offering brings us every day is actually connected back to the Akedah. But that's another podcast for another time. I just want to say here, it says the offering is called food in a figurative sense relating or referring to the parts that are burned on the altar. So the fire that eats it. Remember, Hashem, our God, is a consuming fire. So he literally is eating that. All right, back to Lakute. It says, there is a mitzvah for the Kohenim to eat the meat of the Korbanot. And there is no mitzvah, however, to eat during the week. And it is simply done to retain energy. What then is the meaning and purpose behind weekday eating? Because, you know, on Shabbat, it's actually a mitzvah to eat. But during the week, it's not. But yet, if you don't eat during the week, you might have a little lack of energy, just to name one thing. So there's a mitzvah to eat when it's Shabbat, but it's not a mitzvah to eat when it's not Shabbat. That's interesting. Lakute Torah is bringing that down. Says, what then is the meaning and purpose behind this weekday eating? What importance does eating food on Shabbat and Yom Tov serve to the point that it's considered a mitzvah? So here's a little swerve. I'm going to bring in the Baal Hatanya because this phrase, Yigale Lan Tame, which is where uh, Lakute Torah picks up here. It's talking about the whole eating subject. So the Baal Hatanya brings down, and the Chasdutz Mevueres series says, has a really great explanation on all of this. He also talks about the holiness of food and how it's really mishtashel. It descends many levels from world and level, even higher than the root source of our own neshama. The food we eat comes down from a source that's above the level that our neshama is on. Because a ray of who we actually are shines down, as it were, into this world. Most of who we are still remains up in the higher worlds. This is why new revelation and thoughts and developments and our psyche and our personality and what we're able to understand and ability and all that, i.e. our growing in wisdom and stature, that all stems from that. But however, the food that we eat actually comes from a higher level than our very own neshama. That's ridiculous. Okay, but anyway, it says, he said that we must think to elevate those nitzotzot, those are the rays that I'm talking about. So I said there's a ray of who we truly are that shines down. And um, when you look at food, it has the same thing, that these different sparks, as, as it were, come down into this world. And what we do is we take those sparks and elevate them back up. Those sparks are called nitzotzot. And it says the nitzotzot of Kedushah and incorporate them into ourselves while eating. So now you're going to like bring over this little spark into your spark, and then you're going to elevate that up to your high level, which is going to bring it back up to where it was connected to who you are. So literally, you're going to have a soul elevation, basically, when this happens, because you're going to get tapped into a higher conduit through the food you eat. So that goes without saying that if you eat something that you're not supposed to eat, what kind of power or what kind of siphoning is being done to the proverbial system? But I digress. It says, he, 
He said we must think to elevate those nizodzot of Kedusha and incorporate them into ourselves while we are eating. This is why Torah study and prayer while you're at your table is important because this helps with that process of elevating things. That you want to have the Kavanah, you want to have the intention of while you're eating. Uh, and this week is Parsha, <clears throat> as a, I'm doing this subject for Parsha Kaye Sarah, but it's currently the week of Parsha Toldot. And this is why when Asaph comes in, it's like, what you got, Yaakov? Just pour it down my throat. He's just like, I don't care. I'm not even thinking about this. I'm just going to eat. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit in a second because Dr. Sakal has some beautiful insight on that. But this is why it's important to know you don't just sit down at the table and slop food down your mouth. Eating is a very spiritual time and we should take advantage of it. Okay, back to Bahatanya. He says, if we do this on weekdays, it helps us elevate those things back to their source. So now our neshama is going to elevate higher than where it was because we're going to partake of food that's actually on a higher level than where we are. This is the beautiful thing about why if we serve Hashem with simple faith and we eat what he tells us to eat and don't eat what he tells us not to eat, then, you know, we're going to experience elevations that we're not even aware of. And you're going to start to notice, oh, I can think a little faster. I can think a little clearly. I can comprehend deep things. It's like, yeah, because you're getting elevation. Thank you for being obedient, you know, kind of thing. That's where that comes from. Anyway, so, but on Shabbat, on Shabbos, they already exist on their original level. And then we have to have in mind that they should take us on their coattails to their level of Kedusha with them rather than them needing us to elevate them. So basically during the week, Everything is falling down and we're eating and we're pulling it back up during the Shabbat. Everything's already on that level. So now we're getting pulled up as opposed to those sparks falling down. This is why the Shabbat, the Shabbos meals are so important. They happen three times, just like the three prayers. They happen during the evening, which is the Arab Shabbat meal. They happen during the afternoon, which is the Oneg. And it happens during the third meal upholding these three meals we're elevating our neshama so high that it's ridiculous like we're getting pulled up as it were just like Yehezekiel when he got pulled up by Hashem and his vision to get to the temple but anyway so back to Lakute. all right so I'm going to jump from there and go into the purpose of eating it says the Arizal bring or the Arizal states bringing kingdoms to the king Kabbalah explains how all elements of creation were rectified via the temple sacrifices. As is known, okay, I, so I inserted this into the Lakute Torah. So if you do not see this information, this is something I've inserted. This is from the Arizal. And the, again, it's bringing kingdoms to the king. And this is the Kabbalah, the, the Kabbalah which is explaining how all elements of creation are rectified via the temple sacrifices. As is known, the divine name of Hashem alludes to five principal partsufim. Partsufim is a fancy word for faces. And it says the sephirot as they are joined together in various ways taught in Kabbalah. A partsufim, chesed, gevura, teferit. Netzach, hod, yesod. Like the little triplets, okay? Or Malkut Zeranpin, 
that kind of thing. All right. So it says that uh, as is known, the divine name of Hashem alludes to the five principal parts of theme of the world of Adzilut. So the divine name of Hashem is way up in the highest of worlds. And it's important to know Hashem is beyond that. But again, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. So in this highest world, that's Hashem's name and as follows. The upper thorn of the Yod corresponds to Arik Unpin. The Yod itself corresponds to Abba. The He corresponds to Ima. The Vav to Unpin. And the final He to Nukva, which is kind of like a feminine aspect. So Hashem's divine name is actually broken out into five principles. The tip of the Yod, the Yod, the He, the Vav, and the He. Okay? Four letters, but five things. It says, now corresponding to these, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created five kingdoms in the physical world. So Hashem's name is a representation of the five kingdoms of the world. It's the silent kingdom, which is the inanimate or mineral kingdom. Then you have the vegetable kingdom. You have the animal kingdom. You have the articulate kingdom, which is called the, the kingdom of man. And then you have the kingdom of soul. Okay. So this is our, like our thoughts and our psyche, who we are. Okay. And then it says creation unfolds through successive levels of consciousness of God. Each of these levels is called a world. So as creation unfolds, it comes down through these different levels and these are called worlds. Okay, Azilut is one of those worlds. So the place where Azilut ends and the next world begins, that's a step and a level of consciousness of who Hashem is. It's important to know in Azilut, there is nothing but Hashem. So when we ever have those moments where it's just kind of like, I don't, I don't have nothing in my mind other than Hashem. It's like, you've brought down just a fragment of what it's like to be in Adzilut in that world in that highest of worlds where even the demons go Shema Yisrael, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the higher spiritual forms that we're unable to see and the, in the Adzilut, whatever is up there in that world, like, even if it, pretends or wants to be or is uh, destined to be or classified as evil, even in that world, it's like, nope, Hashem is king. Like, there's no way to deny him. Basically, in our current form, if we were in the world of Adzilut, we would be a ball of fire. Like, we could not exist. This is why no man can see Hashem and live, basically. All right. So... Again, it says, so every world is thus simply a projection of the preceding one onto a lower spiritual level. So we're stepping down, stepping down, stepping down, stepping down. And basically what we experience in the lower world is only a projection of what's above us. Okay, so every world is a projection of the preceding one. Thus, even our physical world reflects the spiritual structure of the highest spiritual realm. Okay, the world of Adzilut. The fact that the elements of this world may be organized into different kingdoms in accordance with the level of life they exhibit means that this hierarchy exists as well as or as well in the spiritual realms. 
The Arizal here tells us that the five kingdom corresponds to the five parzufim of the world of Atzilu from which they descend. There are many ways in which these correspondence are evident. So you have Malkut, which is described as possessing nothing of its own, i.e. whatever content it possesses, it receives from other sephirot. In this sense, it may be considered to be silent or inanimate. So when we look at things that are inanimate objects, they basically stem from one of the aspects of the five parts of theme of the divine name of Hashem in the higher worlds. An animal, same thing. Us as humans, same thing. Us as our soul, same thing. And then the vegetables, the plants and all that, same thing. So if you took all of creation, put it together, and elevated all the way up to the highest, you would get to experience the divine name of Hashem. So this goes without saying, but I must swerve and digress into it anyway, that people, when they try to pronounce the divine name, just want to put it out there. We're in the lowest of worlds. And in order for you to really fully be able to, uh, to pronounce the divine name, you're going to have to unify the inanimate objects with the animals, with the plants, with mankind, all being on the same page. And then you're going to have to also uh, unify your soul in order for you to really bring forth the fullness of the divine name. So obviously that's way uh, dramatic and more exaggerated than just pronouncing it. But and truly to have the essence of what be, what is trying to be pronounced, that's what it takes. And it's important to know that in the temple, that was available, which is why when people heard the divine name pronounced, they all fell on their faces and said, blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever into all eternity. There was not a person standing in the temple precinct when that happened. So just want to throw that out there. All right. Next thing, spiritual service, because our my zone is spiritual service. It says, eating food is not merely a fact of life and a means for living, but it's a form of service to God. Hence our Corinthians passage. It says, it actually helps the continuous life of the worlds. So again, the way we eat affects how life and all of the energy and all of the light of Hashem is operating and moving about in all the worlds. It's interesting to note that's kind of crazy when you think about what we eat and it has that big of an effect. But yet in our own trivial minds, we go, Psh, whatever, it was just a cracker. And it's like, well, was it a kosher cracker, though? Because basically that would be the equivalent of a nuclear bomb spiritually <laughs> that if you ate it and it was kosher, and you said your Braca before and after, you just unleashed a whole lot of something in one of those parts of theme. But if it wasn't kosher, you just destroyed and ripped up something in those parts of theme. And you wonder why there's darkness and chaos in the world. It's like, well, what what's being projected? Oh, don't care about what you eat. Literally, we could revolutionize the whole system if we really focused on what we ate. I just want to say, say la to that. You want to talk about bringing redemption, have people eat kosher. Okay. Like forget it. All right. Anyway, 
Going on, it says, this can be seen from the service of the sacrifices which took place in the temple and encompassed almost all of the temple service, incorporating tens of positive and negative commands in its details. The service of the Corbinote, the offerings, and the temple drew divine energy into the worlds and allowed its continuous life and expansion. Now in exile, we no longer have the temple service. This great avoda has to be performed by every individual from the table at which he eats. The temple was destroyed, so now we got many sparks of temples at the tables of those who so choose to eat kosher. And I pray that that is the fullness of the nations being brought into Torah, i.e. being converted and brought into Judaism and, and being a Yehudi, a Gitchusam, just like Abraham and Sarah. So when we look at that, we have these different sparks of these uh, shatterings of, of the fullness of the temple now being made manifest into our individual tables. So yes, if you're at work and you're having a kosher meal, you've brocked your food before and after, that is a site of the Holy Temple. That's a little piece of it. So now we have little pieces of the Holy Temple going on at our tables. And when we are all doing that, that's, by the way, building up the temple, because now you're going to have a bunch of pieces that all just need to be gathered together. Beautiful thing about Hashem is there is no space and there is no time. So what's that really saying when we have this conglomeration of pockets of the temple being manifest in break rooms and people's houses and parks, you know, and wherever we're eating, you know, it's like, okay, so if we get that threshold of, you know, all these different manifestations of the temple, they can all come together into the final Beit HaMikdash. That's what I'm saying. That's, but that's what I'm saying. Okay, but anyway, it says now, you know, it's performed by the individual Jew at a table which he eats. On this, the verse states, Zeha Shulchan Asher Lifnei Hashem. The translated is that the table at which one eats is considered to be in the presence of Hashem. Okay, so your table is, first of all, likened to the altar at which the sacrifices are offered. So literally, there's uh, ancient, or not ancient customs, but previous generations would literally, when they got buried, they would want their table used as part of their coffin that they would be buried in because they want to be buried with what atoned for them. So that's literally the power of your table. Your table is not something to be taken lightly. And you need to know that your table is before Hashem. So for those of us who watch TV at our table or read, uh, you know, non-Torah books or listen to non-Torah music, you know, and all that kind of stuff, just kind of working to be mindful of what kind of content are you presenting before Hashem. Hashem already knows there's a bunch of hoochie mamas and a bunch of like vile and disgusting shows and programmings and music out there. However, you know, the temple has gates. Heaven has gates. As one comedian says, why does heaven have gates? What kind of hood is heaven in? You know, for those of us who grew up in the hood and knew that you better have a gate around your house or it's going to be some problems. But anyway, 
But just think about that, you know, because your table doesn't have gates. I mean, you're the gate of your table because you determine and dictate what gets put on it. And so not necessarily saying that when you're eating, if it's not Torah, then you're you're breaking stuff and you might as well just forget about the redemption. But it's just saying, make sure you have something wholesome, something Oh, this is beautiful because I just did a podcast about the uh, Tehillim of Toldot and it talks about the, the psalm that corresponds to the Torah portion of Toldot. Uh, and it talks about the kind of, of Hashem being revealed in nature. So this is a beautiful time to insert that at your table. Where is the kindness of Hashem being revealed in the natural things, in the material things? Those are the kind of things you want to bring to your table. You know, something that reveals the glory of Hashem, even if it's not per se a drosh or even if it's not a humash. What do you have in your possession that you can bring before Hashem that reveals his kindness? That's what you want to try to be mindful to put on your table. But anyway, so just to transform our eating a little bit, you know, this is why I love the fact of always trying to have safari available or trying to have, you know, some picture of a source that I took or, you know, going back through things that I've uh, studied throughout the week. You know, I always want to try to bring that to the table I'm at. I love playing the Aliyah day when I'm at break or at lunch at work, you know, and uh, the Musar class by Batya the violent rumbot, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, just up your game on that. And as all of us do this, I guarantee you, we will see a change. Anyway, continuing on without further ado, it says Chazal learned this from, or Chazal learned from this, that the table of man is considered as his place of atonement. Do you realize we're supposed to be crucified with Mashiach, right? Mashiach was crucified on a piece of wood, i.e. a table. He said, take and eat of my flesh, which is broken for you, i.e. Mashiach's death on the crucifixion stake was like a vertical form of a dinner table. And the horizontal form of our table, you know, is what we partake of you know, as food, but Mashiach is like, well, when I'm vertical, I want you to partake of me. And it's like, so now you got to think about the mezuzah because Sephardi used to be like, no, we're going to put the mezuzah horizontal. Ashkenazi was like, no, we're going to put the mezuzah straight up and down. It's like, you know what? Let's just put the mezuzah at a diagonal. There we go. It's a Ashkafardi mezuzah, uh, mean hog compromise anyway. But I just bring that up because just kind of looking at the word, like on a piece of wood, you know, and this being the element of eating and partaking and a place of atonement. The word brings atonement for us. Sacrifices bring atonement for us. You know, Mashiach's blood brings atonement for us. Which, side note, is the blood of Hashem, but that's for another time. So anyway, you have an, a, you have an opportunity for atonement, basically, is what I'm saying, when you sit down at your table. Table, super important. And it says, the place of atonement, similar to the Mizbeach in the times of the temple. All right, so dropping some Shulchan Aruch, it talks about the Berurim, which is a portion of the Shulchan Aruch, or forms of avoda. is Berurim, is a form of avoda, forms of avoda. And it says, 
This can be performed through eating. Okay, remember, avoda is service to Hashem. This is one of the things that we used to do in the garden. We used to have avodah and shomer. We used to have service and guarding of the mitzvot. Anyway, it says, one is that through eating food, the food is elevated from the animal kingdom to the level of midaber, which is the human kingdom. The kingdom of man, the speaking man, is higher than the kingdom of animal. Okay, and it says this elevation brings about a spiritual elevation of the food, which is caused by the removal and elevation of divine sparks contained within it. The second function of eating is diffusion or hamshacha, which is a rearranged form of Mashiach, by the way. Uh, hamshacha or Hamashiach, I should say, Hamashiach, Hamshacha. You can look at those letters and kind of get a picture of Mashiach. Anyway, diffusion, whereby food has the ability to draw down divine light to us below. Hence why Mashiach is the one who brings us connection and attachment to Hashem, diffuses godliness into our souls kind of thing. That's Mashiach. That's why Mashiach is the Torah made flesh, you know, because the Torah, what does the Torah do? It diffuses godliness. Anyway, so when we're eating food, we have an opportunity to elevate the divine sparks. We also have an opportunity to diffuse divine light that's drawn down. All right, this is where I want to bring in the doc, Dr. Sakal, dropping down some Parsha Todot insights. This is pertaining to Asav. It says, whatever pleasures and satisfactions such people do experience are only temporary and the time will come when they rule or when they rue their former lifestyle and they cry out bitterly when they realize that life has deceived them. So Asav is talking about, I've been deceived. I've been tricked. I can't believe Yaakov did that to me. It's like, no, no, no. You did this to yourself because when you pursue pleasure and satisfaction, it double tricks you. It double deceives you. I Speaking as Yaakov, I, Asav, did not deceive you. You deceived yourself because you chased after pleasure and satisfaction, which are only temporary. And once they are complete and you've been satisfied, you're going to realize, oh, my goodness, I lost something. OK, this is why if you use your pleasures to the service of a shim, you actually gain something. So might want to say law on that. But anyway, it says that. This is what Shlomo had in mind when he said Mishlei, Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. This is precisely the lifestyle of Asaph and all those who support him. By the, by the way, supporters of Asav is the grace message. Just going to throw that out there and just let everybody know that that's pretty much what that is. In case uh, you uh, have this moment of realization, I can't believe I've been tricked. It's like, I don't want you to feel that way. Just want to let you know, if you're a supporter of Asav, you're a follower of the grace message. This believe and don't do anything the Bible says 
Just do what you think is best to you. That's supporting Asaf. That will, in the end, get you double deceived. I know it may be a little hard to deal with, but food for thought. And this is a food fight. So if you got mashed potato in your eye, I told you. I told you already. It was a fight. Should have came armored up. Anyway, it says the philosophy and lifestyle of Yaakov are diametrically opposed to this, which is the lifestyle of Asaf. It says, for someone characterizes Ishtam, a simple man, and as Yoshev Elohim, a dweller in the tents. This is the antithesis of someone described as Yodea Zayid Ish Sadeh, a hunger, a man of the field. Okay, so the antithesis of Esav is Yaakov. Says not only this, whatever Asav was willing to give up, i.e. to sell, because that's what happens when you give up something, you sell it in one way or another. Yaakov was anxious to buy. What Asav was willing to give up, what this man of the field, this person of hunger, what that person is willing to give up, Yaakov's like, oh yeah, let me let me get that. Let me get that. You know, because if you're going to be a person who's super ambitious, super like I'm about my business and nothing else, I want my way, I want my path, I'm power hungry, I'm money hungry. It's like, what did you give up? You gave up peace. What did you give up? You gave up clarity and shalom and vision to Hashem. Like, oh, yeah, let me get that. Let me let me buy all that. Let me just take that off your hands real quick because you chasing after money, riches and fames and hoochie mamas. Let me have all the good stuff and you can go after all the quote unquote good stuff. Yaakov is like that. Now, if that's a tricky person, call me a tricky person because I want shalom. I want clarity in my understanding of who I am to Hashem and who Hashem is to me. I want understanding of the word of God. I want to be a dweller of the tent. You can have the feel, okay? It's hot out there anyway. So it says that uh, Yaakov was anxious to buy. When the Torah speaks about the dish of lentils, something round, lentils or something round, always returning to its beginning. Just like our Torah portions, just like our Yom Tovs. It says, this merely illustrates the concept of the pursuit of the pleasures of this world. The physical universe and all phenomena in it are constantly being recycled. As Shlomo said already in the beginning of Kohelet, there is nothing new under the sun. What is perceived as progress eventually is seen to be merely a retread of something old. Yaakov, who had perceived this, was therefore anxious to sell such merchandise in return for something which promised enduring progress. The instrument of securing the spiritual progress is the birthright which, by the way, Dr. Sakal sent a beautiful picture of this passage when it was talking about the birthright and all that kind of stuff. It literally, the initial letters in this passage was Yeshua. So the way that you want to uh, purchase the birthright is through Yeshua. And by purchasing the birthright, you purchase the instrument of securing spiritual progress, which is Yeshua. Anyway, it says, as it represents the privilege of performing service 
for Hashem and sacred precincts. So you can see all this cycle. We go year to year, Yom Tov to Yom Tov, Shabbat to Shabbat, Parsha to Parsha. It's like this cycle, this cycle, this cycle. But in the fact that we're doing these cycles, there's actually a way to have progress, even though there's quote unquote nothing new under the sun. It's through the birthright. It's through Yeshua. It's through not being a person who is a pursuit of pleasures. If you're striving beyond the things of this world, if you're a person of simple faith, if you're a person who dwells in the tents of Torah, you can go through all the mundane things, but yet you can progress in the midst of it. Just like Yeshua did. This is why Yeshua grew in wisdom and stature. Because he was in this world, but not of it, which is what we're also called to be in this world and not of it. We're also called to eat that way in this world, but not of it. This is why we don't eat pork. This is why we don't eat shellfish. This is why we don't mix meat and dairy and a whole bunch of other stuff we don't eat. Because it's about progress and it's about being outside of the pursuit of pleasure because when you pursue pleasure outside of the constraints of Hashem's word, his guidance, you're going to give up spiritual progress. You're going to give up shalom. You're going to give up clarity. You're just going to give up a whole bunch of things that you would rather have by the end of the time you realize, okay, now that I've fulfilled my pleasure chase, Man, I really wish I was rested. I really wish I had shalom. I really wish I had clarity on things. I really wish I wasn't so confused and so much wrapped up in drama. It's like, well, the reason why you have all that is because you sold all of the other stuff. And now this is all you're left with. <laughs> and guess who has the stuff that you gave up? Yaakov, Yehudim, people who are Torah observant, people who don't eat pork. People who don't mix meat and dairy. All right. So, moving on. Food has a klipa. Okay, you ever eat something, you're like, oh, this is so good. And it's like, what'd you eat? Chocolate cake. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's talk about a klipa. Mm. Why we got to talk about a klipa when we talk about chocolate cake? Chocolate cake. Y'all know I love chocolate cake. It's like second on my list after pancakes, which is first on my list after holla. Like, what are we talking here? Like, I'm I'm all up in the klipa. Anyway, Lakute Torah brings down there's a klipa in food, and it literally has to do with the pleasures that are in food. What we have to do with these pleasures, actually, we have to bust them up and reveal the light that's inside of them. Hence why we don't gorge and only eat chocolate cake. Which is why man should not live by bread alone. I know, I know. Some of you are probably already thinking, okay, well, let's talk about holla for a second. I'm like, don't you talk, don't you touch my holla. Can I have a piece of holla? Can I have a piece of your holla to add to my piece of holla? Anyway, can can we can we talk about that? No, we can't. We can't talk about the source. It says, you can tell what I really, I'm stuck in the clip of y'all. I got to bust it up. Well, thank Hashem, I'm able to get some help because Lakute Torah comes to the rescue here. Every food has a mazel. Every food has one. Did you know that? Did you know your food has mazel? That's so funny. I'm going to have to tell mazel about that. Anyway, every kind of produce has a mazel that serves as the spiritual power that gives it life. 
you know, when you eat food and it's able to give you sustenance and nourishment, that's because that that ability for it to do it comes from its mazel, its spiritual power. It says there are various types of mazalot that correspond to the various types of vitality given to each agricultural product in terms of its shape and its taste. This is the reason for the indif- this is the reason for the difference in soil production in which one soil produces one type of fruit while another soil produces another type of fruit. This is dependent on the angelic minister that is assigned over that plot of land and the form of energy that he draws down to the soil in that area. The creation of pleasure within food. It says the pleasure found in the taste of foods. There are 70 angelic ministers who govern their corresponding country and nation and direct the flow of spiritual energy into their country. All of the physical pleasures and delicacies found in their land are a direct result of spiritual energy that ministers receive. Remember how we talked about all those worlds and all the different uh, zot, the sparks that fall down and come down? Well, those channels are the, the, the mazel, like the flow of everything is the mazel coming through those channels. And so as this flow is happening, they got governors on them, which are these angelic ministers. This is why it's like how much flow is coming down to different things, you know, based off of what's happening with what's going on in the spiritual world. So, which we can't see, and I can't really speak to that, but just know there is some stuff that's going on up there. So, it says, Ta'anug Elokai, the pleasure of Hashem, the godly pleasure that fell through the shattering of the vessels. Remember how in the beginning, you know, it was darkness and chaos and it was tohu, babohu, all that kind of stuff. Well, that came because before creation, you know, before the foundations of the earth where the lamb was slain, there was an act of Hashem's light put into a vessel to contain it. But that vessel couldn't hold that light. So it burst. This is probably why creation is kind of uh, tight casted to the idea of a big bang of some sort, because from this bursting came forth creation. Hence why when the temple was destroyed, instead of having a centralized location, now our tables have the ability to be the temple, you know, as we talked about previously. So when you really look at that, this is why this world is actually lower you know, levels than what's above us and how you really think about, um, you know, these, these are fragments and pieces of what actual true reality is above us. Cause really there is no time, really there is no space, but we're in a, in a confinement and dimensions of space and time. And it's just kind of like, we're stuck until everything gets put back together, which is why Olam Haba is a thing. So anyway, Just a little heads up on that. So the shattering of the vessels. So it says that the godly pleasure that fell through this. uh, It says from here, physical and materialistic pleasures and matters that do not involve God are derived. 
So basically, this godly pleasure, some of it kind of fell in not so good areas. This is why different pleasures that we would want to seek that are sinful, it's not good. And that came because of the brokenness. So it says, this is in addition to the fact that every food is mixed with good and evil. This is why some of the most great pleasure you can get can be from the most horrible and worst food that you could possibly eat. I can't really speak to the pork lovers, but that's like the bet. That's probably the best example that there's such a pleasure that's derived apparently from eating pork that it's just kind of like that's the pleasure itself is actually godly. However, the vessel that it's currently fallen upon being the pork, it's like there's this mixture of good and evil. And this is due to the fact of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that we ate from, the eights hadaat. So that's interesting. And for me, just again with the chocolate cake, it's like chocolate cakes actually is good. And the pleasure that's in the chocolate cake is actually good. However, if I eat too much of it, that's bad. And I got to put a limit on that. But however, back in the garden, we didn't have to. Because because when we ate food, it was everything was right and lined up where it needed to be. So therefore, there was only a certain amount of pleasure that was actually in chocolate cake that I would not want to gorge myself on it. And I would still be able to get the right amount of pleasure from it. So that's like, you know, that shakes me up just thinking about it. I'm like, man, why do we have to eat from that tree, man? Because I love chocolate cake. I wish I could just eat my piece of chocolate cake and be good to go. It's like, well. You still can. You just got to work at it now. Just like Hashem said, Adam, you can still derive benefit from the earth that's going to produce thorns and thistles. And you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. You just got to put a little action to it before you didn't have to. You didn't have to prepare your food. Now you do. You didn't used to have to watch what you eat. Now you do. It's like, man, what did we do to ourselves? OK, but anyway, it says in Lukute Torah. Hence, the pleasurable taste found within food is actually a derivative of sublime godly energy that has been brought down into the klipa. It is upon man to redeem the sparks of good found within the food and elevate the pleasure to its original source of holiness. This is, accompli this is accomplished through consumption of the food. So when we eat the food, that's how we crack open the klipa, release the spark, and elevate it back to where it goes. Some klipa, by the way, cannot be penetrated. This is the unkosher foods. The Those klipa are so thick, Hashem is like, even if you eat this, you're still not going to access that spark. So this is why I don't want you to eat it. This, I mean, that's not the main reason, but just a little point. Like if you think about, let's see here, um, like acorns or something like that, like you can crack open that shell and get the, the nut that's in there. But, you know, unless you're an acorn lover, which I don't think that's really a food, but I guess if people are squirrely about it, you know, they probably like it. But I don't know. Something you can think of that's not a food, but you can crack the shell open and eat it. That's the equivalent of eating pork and shellfish and meat and dairy. Like you're doing that. You're cracking open. You're trying to crack open something to eat it. But first of all, that's not food. 
So let's go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, which is not kosher. Because uh, you don't eat elephant. Don't do it. Um, however, giraffes, look out. Anyway, <laughs> my point, my pernt, is that Yeshua made all foods clean. Let's talk about that. If he made all foods clean, that's a redundant statement because food is kosher by default because food that's not kosher is not considered food. So if he made all foods clean, you're saying everything that's suitable and fit for consumption, Yeshua made sure it's clean. It's like, okay, thank you for letting me know the water that is hot water is hot. I appreciate that. I expect when I get hot water, the water is going to be hot. So therefore, if I'm going to eat food, I expect it to be clean because that's what kosher food is. It's clean. Like, so what are we talking about? Anyway, just to point that out. And oh, let's go ahead and drop the Timothy passage. Anything received with Thanksgiving, it's it's like suitable. It's fit. Like you can eat it. It's like, OK, so where is the Braca for eating pork? Where's the Braca for eating shrimp? Is that like Sheha Cole? No, that's Sheha Cole Nye. Like he ain't say none of that. Anyway, if you're looking for that Braca, it's a Baruch Hata Adonai. No way, Jose, shall I consume this? Amen. Push the plate, preferably onto the floor or into a trash can. Anyway, all right, so there's that. Now, it says two forms of klipa. Every food contains two aspects, taste and the ability to satiate. Okay, you got two forms of the klipa, what it tastes like and the ability to satiate. I just want to go ahead because I'm already thinking about food that's so gross to me. I'm like, ugh, klipa, get it out of here. Anyway, and then double klipa when it's like it tastes gross and then you're still hungry after you eat it. It's just like, why? Why is this a thing? Why is this even edible? Why is there a hexer on this? Did somebody fall asleep at the wheel? Like, you know, but anyway, it says these two aspects both derive from two different levels of vitality that the food receives. Taste remains in one's mouth and is seated once the food has been fully chewed and swallowed. While the body of the food remains in one's stomach and gives it energy by converting food into blood. The satiating ability of the food derives from the essence of Ban, the name Ban, the divine name of 52 within Tohu. That's a whole lot of extra information, but we'll keep going. While the taste of the food derives from the external aspects of Tanta Ta'amim of the name of Ban. Okay, so we got an inner and an outer dimension going on. It's really beyond the scope of this podcast to really get into the Shem Ban, but just know that's the name 52 of a Shem, which Ban is the same letters as Ben. So we're talking about the sun. So really, when Yeshua says, eat my flesh and drink his blood, he's talking about something with this. Uh, it's actually connected. So anyway says both of these aspects of food contain good and evil as the pleasure of taste can make a person a glutton and lustful while the satiation can lead one towards frivolity. You know, that that food high that you get where you're like so happy and you're like, I'm going to go choke somebody. It's like 
If you're eating food that's making you that happy, you might need to switch your diet. But, you know, sometimes you kind of eat and you get a little get a little tipsy, get a little food drunk, a little food wasted, as they would say in the hood. And you do some things that are not smart. So you might want to avoid that. It says it is upon man to redeem the sparks of good found within the taste and body of food and to return it to its original source of holiness. All right, so got our functions of food on Shabbat and all of that. Really quick, just a little side note here. This is an aside, as Rabbi Griffin would say. Two forms of eating. There's the way to eat like a Zodic and a way to eat like a Rasha. Don't eat like, man, that just sounds like a song. Watch me eat like a Rasha. Uh, oh my gosh, eating like a Rasha. Oh my gosh, we shouldn't do it. We should eat like a Zodic. Eat like a Zodic. Don't put it in your pocket. What? Anyway, um, I don't know. Just that just every time I hear Zodic and Rasha, it just makes me think of a rap. Anyway, all right. So it says there are two forms of eating. One is called Zodic Ochel Le Show. A Zodic eats to satiate his soul. Notice it says his soul. Not his body. Not my stomach is empty. Let me eat something. No, my soul needs some vitality. So let me eat something to nourish my soul. The second one is Ubetin Reshaim Tekshar. The stomach of the Reshaim is lacking. Man, I need my whatever because I'm like, I'm starving. Oh, my gosh. Throw that food down my throat, as Asav would say. Or, man, it just tastes so good. I just don't know if I can go without it. It's like, man, my stomach is my God. Okay, that's called eating like a Russia. Oh, my gosh. Eating like a Russia. Okay, anyway, how much it costs you? Okay, anyway. Uh, the former, regarding to the Zodic, refers to the form of eating that is done on a Shabbat in which food itself draws down godly energy to a person's soul. Hence the Zodic, which is the soul. Hence the Zodic, which is the soul. Like literally, seriously, the Zodic is the soul. Get out of here. It says, eats to satiate itself with new divine light. The latter regarding the Reshaim refers to the weekday eating in which the purpose of eating is to refine and elevate food to holiness. The term Reshaim, meaning wicked, refers to the klipot contained within the food that is removed. Tekshar. Okay, tekshar means re-remove through eating. And it says, every food contains klipa. Klipa of the food of ta'ava, lust, that food or each food contains. The ta'ava is the root. Ta'ava, again, being lust of the klipa of that food. By eating this food and having it incorporated within man's body, turning it into blood that gives energy to his heart and mind, transported into godliness and holiness, this then removes the godly energy from that klipa of this food that has been captured. Hence, the klipa now remains empty of its own godly energy. So there is an energy inside of lust, but when you eat it and you can transform it into mitzvot, you know, now you're going to zap that klipa, that lust of its uh, ability to lead you into wickedness and frivolity because you've now ingested that and converted it into 
uh, energy to your heart and to your mind, and you transform it into godliness through mitzvot. By the way, meat is one of these things. This is why when they uh, the children of Israel asked Hashem for meat in the wilderness, they talk about it was a, a lust and a craving because they wanted to do things that they used to do in Egypt out in the wilderness. Hashem was like, <laughs> not in my house. Okay, I'll give you some meat. You're going you're gonna to wish you never asked me for that. And it's like, there's a whole story about that. But anyway, but if you eat meat, you want to make sure that you channel that because it now fills your body with lust. And if you don't check it, it's actually going to lead you down. It's going to lower you, de-elevate you. And you're going to do some very animalistic stuff. It's going to actually pull you down. This is why some people refrain from eating meat, which you can go ahead and connect that to because it is. To the passage in Romans that says, you know, uh, those who are spiritually weak among you who don't eat uh, meat because they spiritually are not at a place of understanding how to elevate it. You know, and so when it talks about the spiritually weak people, it's talking about the people who don't eat meat. Like there's a whole connection there because there's a klepa in food that's talking about lust. And if you're spiritually weak, i.e. you're lacking in mitzvot, lacking in understanding how to elevate the food that you partake, then you just eat vegetables because vegetables can actually pull you to a higher level. This is why some people go vegan. Some people are vegetarian. And these are probably some of the most uh, vibrant thinkers of our society. And sometimes it's kind of like, man, that person is as high as a kite. It's like, no, they're just vegan. But anyway, uh, that's where that kind of comes from. So when spiritually weak is not a, a slam, it's not a shade. So don't ever feel like that. But just know that you can actually uh, elevate yourself when you eat something that draws you down lustfully. So look for a mitzvah, you know, to focus on. Study some Torah or something like that. Go into prayer. Eat you a steak. And then go do Ma'ariv. Eat you a steak or some chicken. Go, you know, do some Zadaka. Like go go serve, you know, uh, go serve at shul. Go paint some paint some walls at the shul. You know, call up Couture and say, is there anything I can do at the shul? I mean, obviously don't do that if it's like late at night or whatever. So, but anyway, just know, try to look for some way to channel that so that you can actually use that which should pull you down you can actually reroute that power and pull yourself back up it's like uh i think there's a fighting style no nope, not even gonna try because there's a, a fighting style i was gonna try to name it but i can't remember but you can use the uh, enemy's uh momentum against them and so when someone throws a punch at you you can actually take the force of their punch and uh, use that as a takedown technique to where they lose their effectivity in the punch. You actually gain the upper hand and it ends up working to their detriment. It's like, oh, you're going to punch me? Well, you now ended up on the ground because I know this, whatever this fighting style is called, I forget. But uh, you use that and it's like you take your enemy down. So same thing with the lust. This lust you'll ingest into you from the food, klepa. You'll bust up the klepa. You'll reroute that power and the energy it gives you. Do it for transformation and godliness and holiness. And now that klepa got busted up and it dies. So what could be used as evil was now used as good. This is why we're supposed to overcome evil with good. 
the klipa not necessarily is evil, but if it is unchecked, it can lead you that way. Kind of like your Yetzahara. Your Yetzahara per se is not evil, even though it's known as the evil inclination. But if you channeled it, you could actually use your Yetzahara to elevate yourself. You know, like, oh, ain't nobody going to study more Torah than me. Or ain't nobody about to watch the Aliyah Day before I watch the Aliyah Day. I'm going to be the first one on. I'm going to shut down the system because I'm taking up all the bandwidth. I got all my devices preset to the Aliyah Day. Like that kind of stuff. Anyway, be nice, though, because as you're trying to be amazing, you want to also be gracious. Okay. So, in conclusion... The eating of the corbanotes, the sacrifices, says in the times of the temple, when the sacrifices were offered, there was a positive command to eat the meat of the corban. There are two forms of eating, one of the altar and the other of the kohenim. So now you got the altar that eats and you got the kohenim that eats. Those are the two types. And it says the eating of the altar corresponds to our weekday eating. The eating of the purpose or which serves the purpose of elevating the sparks. The eating of the Kohanim corresponds to the Shabbat eating, which draws down Hamshakha from above. So know that when you're consuming food during the week, you're likened to the altar in the courtyard of the temple. When you're consuming food on the Shabbat, when you're eating during the week, you're like the altar in the temple. When you're eating during the Shabbat, you're like the Kohanim. Wow. Eat like a Kohen. Come on, man. All right, so the takeaway that the Lakute brings down, it says, eating food is an avoda, a spiritual service of God. Recognize upon eating a meal that you are not simply eating to give yourself energy, but you are actually bringing about a refinement to the entire food industry. This is why I say we can literally eat our way into the final redemption. Should we elevate everything like it's supposed to be don't eat the stuff we're not supposed to eat. Eat the stuff we're supposed to eat in the way that we're supposed to eat it. Bust up all those clepo. You got yourself the final redemption. That's a recipe. Ah, food for thought. It's a recipe for the final redemption and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. May it be so speedily and soon in our days. I mean, uh, also the other thing it says that eating on Shabbat is an act of holiness that draws down light into your soul. So recognize the greatness of your Shabbat meal and emphasize the spiritual benefits received. Again, that's this week's or that's Parsha Chaye Sarah's uh, Lakute Torah portion. And so uh, those are the insights from there. So food fight. That's the conclusion of this podcast. Fight well, eat amazingly, and be super legit when you do it. Because uh, there's nothing better than looking cool while you uh eating amazingly to bring the final redemption. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Vechaye holam natabetokeinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha Torah, Amen.